Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. The COVID pandemic has been one of the most politically and culturally divisive events in American history, which seems odd. Usually a universal external threat unites societies and rallies populations to focus on the common foe. Instead, American culture fractured into different tribes, which often coincided with our pre-existing political factionalism. Adding to our woes, the proper approach to scientific inquiry and policymakers' relationship with the expert class became badly skewed. Once an orthodoxy was declared by the World Health Organization or the Center for Disease Control, government leaders, the mainstream media, and big tech circled the wagons to prevent dissenting views from being aired and even sought to punish those with differing opinions. One of those caught in this cultural oppression is my guest on this episode of Humanize, Dr. Jayanta Bhuttacharya, a professor of health policy at Stanford University, directs Stanford's Center for Demography and Economics of Health and Aging. Dr. Bhuttacharya's research focuses on the health and well-being of vulnerable populations with a particular emphasis on the role of government programs, biomedical innovation, and economics. Dr. Bhattacharya's recent research focuses on the epidemiology of COVID-19, as well as an evaluation of policy responses to the epidemic. He has published 135 articles in top peer-reviewed scientific journals in medicine, economics, health policy, epidemiology, statistics, law, and public health, among other fields. He holds an MD and PhD in economics, both earned at Stanford University. He is also a co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration, published in the fall of 2020 to great controversy, which dissented from the reigning public health policies being brought to bear against the virus and offered a different approach that would reopen society as we continued to protect our most vulnerable members from illness. Jay, welcome to Humanize. Great to be here, Wesley. Thanks for coming. You know, before we get into the meat and potatoes of COVID, tell me a bit about your upbringing and what attracted you to the fields of medicine and public health. So I, I, uh, I was born in India, uh, came to the U.S. when I was four. Uh, my, I landed uh, in uh, some airport in New York, and, I, and my, my uncle gave me a chocolate bar, and I think it was a Hershey's, and I thought, this, this is a great country. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I've, I've, uh, I've always been attracted to science from, what, from when I was little, and I always wanted to be a doctor. Um, uh, I, I discovered economics um, in, in, 
during my undergrad years and fell in love with it too and came to understand very and i saw really clearly that the methods and thinking about economics which emphasize constraints apply with equal force to medicine medicine's always a question of trade-offs public health is always a question of trade-offs and to me that the fields combine naturally so that's that's how i sort of came to the work that i've been doing uh, most of my life um uh, COVID, of course, I think uh, when it when it arose, it's it I think it's brought to the to everyone's mind all how those trade offs play out. That there is no perfect in this. There's just trying to find your best way in a difficult situation. I think that's uh, something that has been lost, uh, certainly in the media, but also among some of our uh, governing um, representatives, the idea of trade-offs and the idea that uh, when you do one thing, you may actually hurt something in another area. Uh, Why do you think that is? Well, I think part of what happened during COVID is that uh, when when COVID hit, uh, so many people were just deeply scared. I think COVID uh, and infectious disease in, in general, it, it, aff- it affects our minds in a very interesting way. Like there's a primal part of us, like a, a lizard brain part of us that fears viruses, fears infectious disease, fears pathogens. And in the West, uh, for decades, we thought we conquered it. It was, you know, that infectious disease is something that happens to somebody else. And when the specter of infectious disease arose, I think it gripped people with fear, and they turned as, as, uh, as almost immediately to look for gurus or someone who could help them through the the the, the panic, the fear, the, the to, with, with a solution. Um, and I think that I think is one of the central dynamics that we've got, seen through this whole pandemic. Um, this this panic, fear, alongside uh, this uh, this desire to find uh, expertise that knows the answer that'll solve the problem. Yeah, you know, and that I think goes back to how certain problems were solved, uh, certainly during my lifetime. Uh, you're younger than me. I remember the polio epidemics when I was a child, and I remember how terrified uh, my parents were and I was every summer when uh, the polio season would come around. And I remember children, uh, you know, photos of children in iron lungs and this kind of thing. And then the vaccine came along, and suddenly the polio threat went away, literally just went away in a couple of years. And, and we see some public health experts today saying, well, look, back when Jonas Salk and uh, Dr. Sabin were uh, releasing the polio vaccines, there wasn't this kind of turmoil. People listened to what they had to say, but they're not listening to us. I have some thoughts on why that is, but I, before that, I'd like to see what you think. I mean, I think uh, I think that that is a, a fantastic example of how science and science communication can work together. Uh, I mean, during the early, during the polio epidemic, people did crazy things. They would spray DDT in the street to try to uh, reduce the spread of polio somehow, which had fecal oral spread, it turns out. Um, And so I think uh, the, the, the development of the vaccines by Sabin and Salk. Actually, you know, there was a, there's a history there too. They, they, it's not like they got along and there was a lot of controversy over which was the right vaccine to use. Um, and some, you know, like it wasn't easy necessarily to convince everyone to use it. But I do think that there was a widespread trust that scientists were working for the benefit of the public. Um, what's happened during the pandemic is that uh, I think the set of scientists, the scientific leaders uh, who, who who designed with the architects of the re- COVID response, they took it on themselves, essentially, to, to say, look, we know what's best, and it's time to end all scientific discussion 
to cre- to say that there is a, con- a, a, a a consensus, and then follow us. You know, fa- famously Tony Fauci said, uh, "If you criticize me, you're not simply criticizing a man; you're criticizing science itself." Right. I mean, just imagine the level of hubris involved in that. Um, and, and so, what happened was that a, a very narrow group of scientific leaders took took it on themselves to create an illusion of control, and systematically excluded other dissenting voices, uh, even among scientists, uh, there was a narrowing of focus of admissible expertise so that only people with epidemiolo- infectious disease epidemiological expertise with, uh, with you know, maybe virology and immunology had somehow had the, expert, had the knowledge to order the behavior of uh, 7 billion people. Yeah. And, and there was something else, you know, I was, by the way, I got both the Sabin and the sock vaccines as a kid. My parents weren't taking any chances. Uh, but it seems to me that back then what, what those scientists wanted to do was end polio. They weren't trying to change any av- other aspect of society. And I think there's a great suspicion today that some of our, uh, quote, experts, close quote, aren't only interested in health, but they're also interested in things like equity, um, social justice, and other aspects. And they use their expertise in one area to try to push society in a different area, which is beyond their expertise. Do you agree with that? I do agree with that, actually. I think um, I think that, uh, I mean, if scientists are people too. Uh, we right. have opinions. And I, th- I think it's fine to, for scientists to get to, to get, express their opinions and thoughts on this. I, I don't have any particular problem with that. But I don't think that scientists' opinions on those topics have any special uh, epistemic status. Like you shouldn't necessarily, just, just because a, a scientist who's excellent as an immunologist has an opinion about how society ought to be ordered, well, that should be given, um, de- uh, re- it should be given respect, but not deference. Like that, the scientist may not really understand uh, how poor people live, for instance, or who the, who the most vulnerable people are, because that scientist is a virologist and not an immunologist. And I mean, you know, there's, the, the expertise is generally for scientists is in a narrow area, not a, not more broad. And, and so in fact, what should have happened is that everyone with an interest in, in, uh, in how society should function should have been brought to the table as, as equal experts in deciding like those kinds of things are, are, are deep, difficult questions about how society ought to work in the face of, 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 of the kinds of threats we've seen going to the 200 and some pathogens that are in general circulation in human societies. Uh, and we Great. Live with them. Thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> 200. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's, you know, there's more pathogens than that, but that's like the yeah. ones that, that tend to inflict humans. So I, I think, um, I think the uh, the idea that scientists know how society ought to be structured is a mistake. It's we're, we're just we're just too narrow to have that kind of knowledge. We, we should play a part in it. Like you can you can have a scientist tell you, you know, if you do a, here's the range of things you might expect to see, and have scientists debate about whether that whether that's true or not. But whether you want to do a or not depends on many other things that scientists may have no knowledge whatsoever about. Yeah, and we'll we'll get into that because that was uh, impacted by the Great uh, Barrington Declaration. But let me get a little basic here. What is an epidemiologist? So an epidemiologist is is a is a uh, is a, a scientist who studies disease, its incidence, its uh, the, the the things that tend to prevent it at population scale. And why are epidemiologists important in in terms of trying to come up with proper policies for fighting uh, COVID? So uh, the the field is very good at looking at and interpreting disease data. Uh, it's also uh, has methods 
that are designed to ask causal ask and answer causal questions like if i if i put in place uh if i if put this vaccine uh in and and i deploy it among the the old here's what the death rates will look like in different age, in populations here's if i deploy it among among uh, frontline workers instead first here's what it'll look like i mean it, it, there are statistical techniques and other epidemiological techniques that are that are that uh, epidemiologists possess that are really good at answering those kinds of questions and so I think we want those answers, right? I mean, that's sure. why that, that kind of expertise was really important here. But, but they are not—they are not the ones we're, that should be making quote the decisions, correct? No, right. So exactly. So just I'll give you an example of this: um, the question of whether the vaccine, uh, what's the efficacy of the vaccine against preventing transmission of disease? What's the eff- efficacy of the vaccine against preventing uh, uh, severe disease if you should get COVID? Those are the kind of questions epidemiologists are good at a- answering. Like you can you can use a, a whole slew of methods to answer questions like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, should we have vaccine passports? Well, that's much broader than the the, the, the orbit of questions that that, that that epidemiologists tend to focus on, right? So uh, the trade offs might include, for instance, that the vaccine passports will induce some people to to get vaccinated that otherwise would not because they they want to be able to go to their favorite restaurants, they want to be able to fly internationally or whatnot. Um, at the same time, the trade-offs, right? So uh, it, it, if you have a vaccine passport and people essentially feel coerced into getting vaccinated, that's going to create distrust in, in the, in, um, among people about vaccines. And that could have consequences for the demand for childhood vaccines like the polio vaccine, which could have, you know, really bad effects. Um, uh, the, it, you, you, uh, there's other people that I think ought to be involved, like political scientists might be able to tell you, well, essentially creating a two-tier society, right? One, one group vaccinated, one group not vaccinated. You have to show your papers um, when, you, when you go places. Is that the kind of society we want? Um, I, I think those kinds of questions are beyond uh, the, the, the specific expertise of epidemiologists. And, yeah, uh, and, it, and, and what's happening is you're, you're actually, uh, when you change the subject from if we do A, this is the likely result from A. If we do B, this is the likely result from B. Two, is A more desirable than B based on a whole host of other factors? You've brought in so many other aspects of the decision that have nothing to do with epidemiology. You're actually uh, kind of abusing the epidemiologist's uh, uh, expertise in the sense that you're asking him or her to go places that they're really not prepared to do. Yeah, I mean, it's not. I should be careful. Like, there are a lot of uh, ex, uh, of epidemiologists with who are widely read and sure. uh, and understand. Uh, you know, they belong. It's not that they don't deserve to belong in that conversation. Of course, but they their do. particular expertise as epidemiologists don't give them a special status in that conversation. Right, and there are a lot of other people who would then you'd want to hear what they have to say. For example, perhaps a mental health expert on a lockdown. What is uh, taking kids out of school as a lockdown? Okay, are you going to prevent children from getting the virus? On the other hand, what harm are you going to cause children when they're not at school with each other? And and it, the the decision making becomes very <laughs> convoluted and complicated. Yeah, I completely agree with that. Uh, we should have at the outset included a very broad set of voices to discuss the policy. Instead, we had a very narrow group of scientists, and I'll just say, I, at the, at the time, I had the sense that. The scientists that were making this decision, they really were a broad majority. Over the course of the epidemic, uh, I've come to realize that that was an illusion. 
there were many scientists with relevant expertise who di didn't agree or had reservations about the policies that we that we followed, and, and they were marginalized. Uh, like most famously, uh, when I wrote the Great Barrington Declaration with uh, with Sinatra Gupta at Oxford and, and Martin Kulldorff at uh, at Harvard, uh, we wrote it on October fourth, twenty twenty. Four days later, it turns out I found out uh, years uh, two almost a year and a half later, uh, based on a FOIA of a, a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request. Of, of, of documents, um, the, to, uh, Francis Collins, who was the head of the National Institute of Health, NIH, wrote an email to Tony Fauci, the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, calling the three of us fringe scientists and, and asking for a devastating published takedown of our premises. Um, I, I mean, and he viewed this as a PR problem. And it was a PR problem to him. It wasn't a scientific problem. We were inconvenient because we had essentially shattered the idea that there was a scientific consensus about lockdown as the right approach. Uh, it, it, he wanted to create an illusion of scientific consensus one did not exist. It was essentially a propaganda operation uh, instituted by the, our, our scientific leaders. Yeah, and, and we're going to get into to that event, but I want to get a little bit more uh, centered on your history. Prior to the Great Barrington Declaration, um, you were you were well known in the scientific community, but I think it's fair to say you were not a public personality. Would that be fair? <laughs> I think I'd never written an op-ed before March of 2020. Uh, I, I I'd been on TV once, I think. I mean, I, it was like it was about it was the, during the Obamacare days, and people were interested in health economists. Uh, and I, I, I mean, I wasn't my my entire life. I've never sought public attention. Uh, I mainly sought. Uh, to talk to my fellow scientists. To, yeah, you, I mean, 135 articles, that's a lot of work. And those are all in scientific journals. And the discourse, the professional discourse, usually happens above uh, the public awareness. I mean, you guys are all talking to each other. You're sharing studies and so forth. And the New York Times doesn't cover it. Fox News doesn't cover it uh, because this is an arcane area of expertise. And, and you were not, um, I take it, deemed a controversial person within the scientific community at that time, were you? I don't think so. <laughs> I, mean, I, I teach at Stanford University. I mean, I, I, um, uh, I, it, it actually, I, now that I've been called a fringe scientist by uh, Francis Collins, I'm tempted to adopt it on my business card just to, I'm sorry to <laughs> like, the, like the title, but um, I, I think, I, I, no, I, I don't believe that I was particularly controversial. I mean, you know, within um, within the areas that I write, it's uh, it's it touches on health policy, it touches on epidemiology. Those are controversial areas. So there's always like you know jostling back and forth. But I'm, right. I'm speaking with other uh, analysts in these areas in in good faith, trying to understand uh, you know when if you if you adopt a, a certain uh, you know a, a policy, what's likely to happen to to vulnerable people. I mean that's that's a legitimate area for scientific discussion. And that's, that's what I spent my life doing. And, and debate and, and differences of opinion. And this is, I think, a really important point. In the uh, discourse in which you were engaged before you became a public person, you might have debates, arguments, disagreements, but that's how science works, isn't it? Doesn't, it isn't science supposed to have different opinions and people ta tackling an issue from different angles? I mean, I think science at the edge always looks like that. 
uh, you know, they're, they're settled scientific questions. Like the, 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 the sun is what 93 million miles from the earth. That's just a, a fact. Uh, I, I mean, that's, we're not going to sit there and debate that because that's just a fact, right? Uh, uh, they're, they're that, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. Hydrogen has a, a single, uh, a single electron generally. Uh, uh, I mean, I don't know things like Water that. Water is just, made up of H2O. H2O, yeah. right? I mean, I think those kinds, those are basic scientific facts. We're not, there's not going to be a ton of discussion, although even <laughs> weirdly, there's still, um, people still fight about, about things on, 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 even, even on the most, most, the, even on the things that seem like the most settled that you'll, you'll be, you'd be surprised to know that there's still scientists that are sitting there discussing uh, important things, even on there. Like there's still people who actively uh, practice uh, the science of anatomy. Right. Uh, so it's, and there's, you know, I just, so I think it's, uh, but at the, on the other hand, when you're looking at questions that are not settled, that are at the edge, it's science is, it's, that's what makes science fun to me. Uh, we're all scientists are engaged in an enterprise where we're trying to find what's true about the world. And that truth comes out of, a, I think, a dialectical process where right. if you say A and I say B, well, we, together discuss it and say well if we have an experiment uh and the, uh, such and such and it shows x well a is more likely if it shows y then b is more likely we run the experiment it shows x i'm like pissed off that you were right i, I buy you dinner and then we go on and i say okay well what about what about a prime and then we come up with another experiment i mean that's how science works it's a dialectical process of 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 hypothesis uh, experimentation, discussion—it's a human act, not something that where knowledge is given to us from from above. And heterodox theories or hypotheses um, should be uh, accepted as part of the scientific process, because something may be seemingly settled. For example, I, I think of continental drift. They didn't believe in it, and there was a fellow who said, "Wait a second, I think we can explain certain things." best by this idea of continental drift and oh ha ha you're you're really wrong and he turned out to be right if he had been prevented from actually trying to present that and prove that we still wouldn't know about continental drift yeah i mean i think uh you have to permit the fringe to exist in science yes the fringe is where a lot of the ideas come from that turn out to be right i mean there, there's unfortunately the sociology of science is that it's it's often very um uh, punishing of people on the fringe, right? So, uh, it uh, like that continental drift story is interesting because the idea of continental drift didn't really wasn't accepted until the previous generation of geologists essentially passed away or retired. Yeah, but that's that's a trend. That's a human trend, but it needs to be resisted if scientists to actually uh, advance. And that's why I think the concept that we kept keep hearing of follow the science or the scientific consensus says is actually in a sense anti-science because it is thwarting. It's it's designed to thwart that that dialectic that you were just describing. It absolutely is. And I think um, to think about science as a monolithic set of facts does grave disjust, uh, injustice to science. Science is a beautiful thing, a human thing where we reason together about what the, what the, what the material world is like, um, you know, what, what, what drives it, what explains, uh, and, and think of theories that, that help us understand it better. Um, that human act is undercut when you essentially exclude uh, people from entering it with ideas that don't coincide with what center believes. Um, yeah, the, yeah. And, and, then, and then we're all the losers. I mean, some of those ideas will not pan out, but to uh, not allow them to be expressed or not allow them to be debated uh, is, is really to uh, interfere with 
the uh, the the forward advance of knowledge in in human uh, in human uh, culture. Yeah, I, I you know before the pandemic, I'd actually been uh, I had a line of research looking at the science of science. I think that's and, important. Yeah, so in particular, I've been I've been concerned about how scientific productivity is measured and rewarded. Um, so scientists have got to this point now where our productivity is measured based on essentially how influential we are amongst other scientists. So mm-hmm. we use measures like uh, citation counts: how many times have my papers been cited? Uh, you know, how many papers have I written? Um, it's not enough to just write papers; you have to write papers that that are in top journals and that influence other scientists. Now, I'm not against that. I think that that's a, that's a reasonable thing. If I'm if I'm a scientist that influences a lot of other scientists, that means I'm a successful scientist to some extent. But I think that's an extremely incomplete measure of how product how productive a scientist truly is. For instance, a scientist whose genius it is is to come up with new ideas, and you know, ten of them. Uh, one after the other turn out not to be true, but then the 11th transforms the world. That's a successful scientist. Even if the, the transformation of the world comes back, come after, after the scientist dies, you want to reward scientists that come, that have new ideas in addition to scientists that are, that are influential, uh, because it's those new ideas that, that refresh science that help us, uh, move, move forward. It's the fringe that, that, that leads to the, the, to better understanding. And not all ideas on the fringe necessarily are right, as you say, but, uh, if you don't respect that they may be right, you're going to, you're going to lead to stagnation. Um, right. And I, I, th- I think there's a natural tendency on the part of, you know, perhaps the establishment scientists to kind of guard their turf. And that has to be worked against if you're a true scientist. I mean, I had an idea before the pandemic uh, published on this in, in, uh, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Uh, uh, th- rather than simply rewarding and measuring um, citation counts and, and uh, there, there are statistics associated with citation counts, you should also reward how likely is it that scientists will work on new ideas. Turns out there's a pretty easy way to measure that. Um, it's like you know a baseball player, right? If you had a baseball player that, uh, that, that struck out all the time, well, you say he's a failed baseball player, but that's because you're only looking at one statistic. You should also look at home runs. Um, you can't simply just look at one statistic and say, well, they failed or not failed uh, or, or successful uh, as, a, as a baseball player just by looking at, at, at one, one number. The same is true for scientists. We, sh- we Often scientists are judged literally on a very small set of numbers. Their productivity, yeah. their promotion, um, you know, uh, and almost all of that is around influence, not on, on novelty of, of their ideas. I think that uh, we're going to move away from the theoretical, but I think that's an important area for you to pursue, and I hope you will once you get past this mess. <laughs> let's let's get back to COVID. Um, prior to the uh, coming of the uh, pandemic, was there a government plan in place to deal with such an event? Uh, there was. Uh, there was. A, there was a. Whole, in fact, ever since, uh, uh, really, it's like nine eleven and the anthrax. Uh, the, there was. A, there was a whole series of 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 efforts by governments to ask, what should we do if there's a, a if there's a, um, a a pandemic? Like, how should we? What should we prepared for? Uh, two thousand nine is a good example of of some of the the fruits of that. That during the during the two thousand nine H one N one flu pandemic, um, there was there was a, there was a, a plan in place. Um, which I think was mostly followed. Uh, you know, to find therapeutics that, that 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 work. Although I think that they they landed on Tamiflu, which I don't actually believe worked very well. Um, uh, 
identify who's vulnerable, uh, develop the vaccines as rapidly as possible. Uh, but most importantly, don't panic the population. Keep society going as well as you can while protecting the vulnerable. I mean, I think that is the basics of the of the of pandemic management. Uh, now, there were uh, in anything field you might imagine some voices that wanted more more draconian things, and some voices that wanted less draconian things. Um, but I'd say that the center was essentially the Great Barrington Declaration, right? Something like that. The Great Barrington Declaration, in that sense, was not new. Uh, it was basically what a century of pandemic management looked like, pandemic management of, of infectious, uh, of respiratory infectious diseases. Uh, so so I, well. since, we're, since we're here, tell us what was in the Great Barrington Declaration and what you all proposed, and then we'll get into how what we did was different. Right. Um, so the basic idea is premised on two very simple scientific facts that nobody disagrees with. Um, so first of all, there's a thousand-fold difference in the risk of, of bad outcomes for older people versus younger people. And it's, it's actually, it's, it's, it's a smooth curve, not, not, a, 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 not discrete. So every seven years of age, the infection fatality rate doubles um, so that children have a very low risk of bad outcomes from being infected while older people have a much worse risk about bad outcomes if they're infected. Something like a 5% infection fatality rate for people over the age of 70 um, uh, with the oldest people having the worst. And for young people, uh, especially kids, I think it's less dangerous than the flu. Um, so you have this steep age gradient. At the same time, the lockdown focus policies we followed are devastatingly bad for the health, the mental health and physical health of, of everyone. And so if you just put those two facts together, uh, by doing the lockdowns on net, you are harming so many of the non-vulnerable while uh, the, and, and you're not actually turns out protecting the vulnerable all that well. We still had had almost a million deaths, you know, in the United States, 80% of whom are over the age of 65. So, uh, you, 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 it, the, the idea of the great Barrington declaration is don't do that. Don't lock down in a way that on net harms a vast, vast number of the people in the population, especially kids, the working class, the, the poor, the vulnerable, uh, instead Focus protection, focus our resources, our ingenuity on protecting the people we know to be at highest risk of the virus. So, for instance, 40% of deaths in, uh, in the United States have occurred in nursing homes. We should have been protecting our nursing homes better from the first moment we understood this, the, the, the fact that older people, especially older people with chronic diseases, are at high risk. Um, we should have, so for, I mean, I, I can give you some ideas I, we, I had that I expressed at the time. Um, about that, but let me just finish with the principle. At the same time, we uh, we should never have closed schools. Um, the, the 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 reigning idea of the management that we undertook was that we could somehow reorganize society to stop or slow transmission in society at large. Instead, we were proposing to replace that idea with the principle of focus protection. Use our resources to protect the vulnerable. Don't use our resources in a fruitless attempt to slow the or slow or stop the spread of the disease. Yeah, and um, as you said, that sounds like the plan that was in place for '09, and then when COVID hit, the pl that plan was uh, cashiered, and something else was put in its place, uh, which w involved, um, as I recall, uh, shutting down at, at the start. Uh, shutting down uh, like uh, two weeks to to flatten the curve. And I remember that uh, I was rather, first, I didn't believe that the epidemic or the pandemic would be as bad as it was because 
I, we hadn't seen anything like this since the Spanish flu of 1917, 1918, 1919. But when it was clear, I think, what, um, that there was a real problem, for example, what was happening in Italy, where in northern Italy in particular, you had hospitals just utterly overwhelmed by sick people. And there was this fear that that was going to happen in the United States. And so uh, Donald Trump, the president, was advised by Dr. Fauci and others that we should engage in that the governors around the country, et cetera, should engage in a shutdown of the economy for two weeks to stop, to flatten the curve. It wasn't, they weren't saying, as I recall at the time, and correct me if I'm wrong, they weren't saying this mean that few, means that fewer people will get COVID. What it meant was that we'll spread the people getting COVID over a longer period of time so that our hospitals won't be hit by these huge spikes in people needing uh, intensive care and that kind of thing. So so that was a, a change uh, from the original plan that I can see what the basis for in the sense of what they were seeing on the ground. Uh, so up until that point, were you kind of going along as well with the idea of a short pause in order to try to flatten things out? I wasn't sure at the time whether it was necessary. Uh, uh, and, I, and I, I'll tell you, part of it had to do with... Uh, it, it seemed to me that there was, while the, the, the disease was widespread, that it seems to be hitting some areas more than others. So they're not every area was equally at risk of having its hospital systems overwhelmed. Are you talking about ge geographic? Yeah, geographic, right? Yeah. So uh, shutting down Montana uh, in March of 2020 accomplished nothing, right? Shutting down uh, New York. Actually, I'm not even sure shutting down New York accomplished much in terms of uh, of overwhelmed hospital systems. We we used, uh, for instance, that Mercy ship and the Javits Center. We built a, a, essentially like a surge hospital, and ne none of those resources were used to the full. Right. Um, so I don't know that necessarily that we needed to shut down to to, to shut society down in order to flatten the curve. I don't. I think uh, I do agree with you, Wesley, that 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 the um, that the pictures out of out of Italy were sh absolutely shocking. It riveted the mind. And at the same time, you had scientists, epidemiologists like Neil Ferguson in the Imperial College model, uh, uh, re released an Imperial College model, uh, a, a forecasting model of what would happen if we didn't shut down. And uh, it said in the United States, if we don't shut down over the next w one, two, three months, we're going to get 2 million deaths. Right, um, and if we and didn't do anything. As, if as we did I nothing. Recall. Yeah. And if we do something, well, we'll get uh, 200,000 deaths. I mean, that model turned out to be completely wrong. But the, for the policymakers at the moment, that was the only model there was, right? There, well, that's the thing, is that, is that there were other voices saying, well, slow down. We don't know yet what how deadly the disease really is. We don't, we don't, we don't, it's like, we can talk about that actually in a minute if, you, if you'd like. Um, we don't, we, we, but there's a lot of parameters about this we don't know. And we also, it, what you said is entirely true. You flatten the curve, you don't, eliminate the cases from ever happening you just put it off into the future which is as you know the last two years can you can see it is exactly what's happened um, right uh the, so in in march of 2020 uh, i wrote a, an op-ed in the wall street journal essentially saying we don't we don't know how widespread the, the virus already is um in in um it turns out in the h for h1n1 in 2009 uh, there was a literature that, that developed in the years afterwards um, that found that 
the disease, if you look at antibody levels against H1N1 in the populations at large, was far more widespread than people realized at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, and so and you know back in March 2020 we didn't really have testing resources deployed at scale. I had an hypothesis that the, the disease might be m- just like H1N1 because it, it's a respiratory disease, obviously spreads very easily, much more widespread than people had realized. And so I ran a couple of studies, one in Santa Clara County here and one in LA County, um, where we looked to see how widespread it was. Actually, so I did a study also with Major League Baseball uh, uh, nationwide. And um, the basic lesson from those studies is uh, first that, that, that it, it is that it was more widespread. In Santa Clara County, it was 2.8% of the population. In LA County, it was 4%. Uh, the, LA, the, uh, the Major League Baseball study, we found 0.7% world, uh, nationwide, but with lots of variation in different, different regions. Um, uh, for you know, for a population of people who are this this is uh, this is like major league baseball employees. So these were like right. not not on the in people you know on the field. Right. Um, uh, so the the lesson there to me was: look, uh, the disease is already pretty widespread. It's not possible to stop it. It's going to become the you know a fifth common circulating coronavirus in the human populations. That's that's where it's headed. Um, so and, so let me let me stop you there. That that's what they mean by endemic, correct? Yes. And that means that it will always now, at least for the foreseeable future, just be a part of our normal disease uh, cycles each year. Yes. Yeah. And, I mean, you, I, and you saw this in March of 2020. I thought it might be possible in March of 2020. After I ran the studies in April of 2020, I, that's, I, I, that confirmed my, my suspicion that that was going to be true. And all right. So at that same time, you had other scientists, Fauci, et cetera, saying, oh my gosh, we have to shut everything down. And you're saying, wait a minute, I think that might not be the wisest course. Did you get any uh, ability to present your uh, studies or, or opinions to policymakers? So when we wrote that Santa Clara County uh, seroprevalence study, it generated an enormous amount of interest worldwide. Uh, I had never been in the public eye before and uh, I probably got more uh, time in the public eye in that one month than I will ever, <laughs> than, than anyone ever, ever should have in their lifetime, probably. Um, I, that, that was, it was an ex- immensely stressful time because the scientific community, uh, much of it, at least the, the most vocal members of it, um, thought that, that there's no way we could be right. That uh, we'd 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 made huge mistakes in our study. That they they, they uh, the 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 press they engaged the press to attack my family. So like for for instance, my wife sent an email to her friends, um, uh, encouraging them to participate in the study. She said some things that that I, I wouldn't have said. I didn't. She didn't ask me for permission to do this. But but uh, um, but that resulted in her being made into front uh, you know, front page news by BuzzFeed in a way to attack me in the study. This this is something brand new in in uh, scientific uh, issues, isn't it? Where normally, let's say, back in the polio days, if you had said, "Wait a second, I see a different approach," that would have been considered a legitimate uh, thing to do. And hey, let's take a look. Let us reason together. This kind of thing. And instead, it sounds to me as if that you were actually targeted by powers that be who had access to media for discrediting because they disagreed with you rather than grapple with the facts or the 
evidence you presented or the methods you presented to determine whether or not you were on a, a proper path. Am I stating that correctly? No, I think I think you're exactly right. And the question is, how did the media land on this? I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I will tell you, I think that... The, uh, and, and a bigger question, if I may interrupt, is how did that become a tactic of dealing with a scientific question when previously I don't recall anything of that kind? I mean, I think uh, there's been this growing movement, um, both within science and also in, in society larger, uh, to discredit people who are, are, are spreading misinformation. And it's become a very sophisticated movement where uh, you have big tech engaged in policing the speech of regular people to say, oh, well, you know, this, is, this is misleading, this is scientifically not right or, or whatnot. Uh, uh, you know, like the, 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 that kind of movement, the, what the idea is that, look, if mis, this kind of if misinformation spreads, it's going to harm people. The problem is there's, 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 uh, if you engage in that kind of, 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 of uh, kind of thing, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to call things misinformation that turn out to be right. We've you're seen that. To, you're going to suppress scientific debate, legitimate scientific discussion. I think the harms of that, suppressing the legitimate scientific discussion, essentially casting a pall on scientific discussion so that scientists silence themselves, is worse than the misinformation spreading at large. There's no way we don't possess the truth. I mean, we're not God. Um, you, you, the, the truth comes out of discussion. But it seems to me that in addition to the media who kind of may not have understood what you're describing and how important that discussion is, that there are actually people at the, let's say, establishment level of science that were trying to prevent anyone else from, from uh, having input if they didn't agree with them. So there's an email uh, that Tony Fauci wrote about the Santa Clara study that came out of a, another uh, Freedom of Information Act request. Um, and it's in a, an archive, ironically, about the BuzzFeed it obtained. obtained. It's five-page email uh, written shortly after the study with almost every word of it redacted. So I don't know what he wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Jay Bacharia is a... <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the, the most famous member of our study team is this, is this uh, uh, scientist named John Ioannidis. He's a, he's a professor here at Stanford, one of the most uh, highly cited professor, uh, 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 scientists in the world. He's, you know, for instance, he, he uh, uh, nailed the, the, the Theranos um, scandal long before anyone else did. Uh, he, he's, he's, been, he's a fantastic advocate for open science and has just, has a, has a, you can look him up. I mean, he's an amazing guy. He, he, was, a, he was a member of our team. Um, uh, he was sl slandered and uh during this period in ways that i i, I still blanch at uh you can go it's it's it, you can go look at his wikipedia pages the wikipedia page is still is still vandalized um uh to, it, it, and uh his it was the 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 social media posts got back to his mother who lives in greece in, including the spreading of a, a a smear that said that uh that 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 that, sh that she was dead huh. someone spread that lie her his mother got word that she was dead from somebody who so one of her friends or asked her and that actually caused her like a a, a health crisis wow um, i mean they attacked uh people who were uh, on the on the fringe in the fringe science like call, calling uh, these, these, these scientists in the nastiest ways imaginable i i personally lost 30 pounds from anxiety around that time um from april may of, what an excruciating experience, and it and it describe. I wouldn't call that fringe, but you're let's say heterodox, 
Yeah. You have a heterodox opinion over those who are in positions of power. But this describes something that is completely ascientific, that approach to uh, differences. That describes something that is ideological, that is political, and that is oppressive and authoritarian. And so at some point, it seems to me, and tell me if you disagree or, or agree, that this crisis, this emergency that certainly was a public health emergency, became the um, pretext for a, a political power grab that had little to do with the actual fighting of the virus. I mean, I do. Th- it did. It certainly became politicized almost. Re- I mean, almost immediately, I could sense, uh, e- even amongst some of my colleagues, this this uh, linking between how we deal with the virus and 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 essentially a loathing of Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, now, I, I have to say, I was a little bit hesitant to come to that conclusion, but in part because the the policy, the same suite of policies, were adopted around the world, sometimes by left wing governments, sometimes by right wing governments, um, and it wasn't. It didn't cleanly map into at least in my under my naive understanding i don't know much about politics honestly um into into like a right left thing if looked at from a worldwide perspective but in the united states it very quickly transformed into this right left thing with donald trump taking the role of villain on, on the left uh, so that almost anything he said was going to be discounted right so he would say sensible things like look you the the, the uh the cost of the intervention, the, the, I forget how he said it, he has more pithy way of saying things than I do, but like the cost of the intervention um, shouldn't be, should not weigh the benefits or something like that, right? Uh, the, the, and, and so I think, um, which is completely sensible. I mean, 100% sensible. That is absolutely right principle. And then he'd like also jump jump forward on things that, that you know, we didn't know, uh, like hydroxychloroquine cures, cures yeah. the disease, he, right? He had, he, he proved the principle of loose lips sink ships. Uh, he, uh, he, he often spoke unwisely and erratically and imprecisely. I think that was even the worst point. He was very imprecise, but you also had a, a the media and others who are, who were eager to either uh, misconstrue what he said or exaggerate what he said in order to turn this whole pandemic into a um, political cudgel and perhaps in that process, we lost the the um, dispassionate scientific approach to the pandemic. Well, I mean, I think that's certainly true. I mean, the hydroxychloroquine thing is a good example of this. Uh, uh, until he spoke, um, there were actually people that were trying to evaluate with randomized trials whether it worked or not. Um, his speaking resulted in an enormous smearing of the of the of the people that were trying to run these trials. By, yeah, as if they were doing something uh, evil or wrong, right? Exactly, um, and uh, and I think uh, it's it's uh, it's really unfortunate because I think scientists participated in that smearing. Yeah, that's the point I was making earlier that uh, that the, the the scientific community became highly ideolo- ideological, or at the very least. Um, cease to be dispassionate, which is, which is something that is required for true scientific, uh, inquiry. And, 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 uh, and you saw that with you and your friend, uh, your, you know, your friend's mother, uh, being said she's dead and this kind of thing. So you're in the midst of this, uh, which became a, it's almost like, um, you know, Custer's last stand, <laughs> all the, you know, the carrying on and the dust is flying in the air and so forth. And you decide, um, it seems to me very uncharacteristically since the previous to this, you were always strictly in the scientific arena 
you decided to move forward and help organize the Great Barrington uh, Declaration. Now, Great Barrington, for people who don't know, is a city in the Berkshires of Massachusetts, and I guess that's where the meeting was held. And uh, you, you gathered people together. How did how did you decide to? Uh, because I think I like to get the human side of, of stories. How did you decide that to be part of that kind of a process, which you knew by then uh, was going to have consequences for your personal life and your professional life? So unlike the unlike uh, March 2020, when I sort of got into the into the COVID uh, discussion, sort of unwittingly, not really knowing what I was in for. In October of 2020, I knew fully well what I was doing in terms of what I what I expected to happen. Um, uh, so, uh, just, just a little bit more, uh, background on this, um, through the summer of 2020, I'd been talking, uh, with a colleague of mine, Scott Atlas, who D Donald Trump had tagged as a scientific advisor. And we were, I, we were sharing papers. Like that was, that was the conversation we had. I would, I would find a paper. I send it to him. If he'd find a paper, he'd send it to me and we discussed the, how to interpret papers. And he'd been tagged as Donald Trump's science advisor. Um, and so for me, this was, uh, I mean, it was, it was intellectually quite an exciting time because I'm at the time I'm like trying to understand, uh, a whole bunch of things about the virus and how it spreads the lockdowns, what the harms they are and so on, uh, their effectiveness. Um, and, uh, it was intellectually a vibrant time for me because I'm, I'm speaking with people who are directly at the center of power. Um, now it turns out that Scott was marginalized within the center of power. Scott Atlas, uh, you know, if you if you read his book, you'll you'll see the frustration he had in trying to convince people like uh, Tony Fauci that look, the science isn't going the way you actually think it's going. That there's lots of there's a huge body of evidence that says that what you're what you're doing is really wrong. Um, uh, and, uh, one of the things that Scott managed to do is in, uh, is in, um, I forget the exact date, but I think it was August, August, 2020. Um, he managed to uh, get, uh, the Trump administration to let, to have to hold a scientific meeting with me, uh, 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 uh Scott, uh, Martin Kuldorf and, and a couple other people. Um, and so I actually got to go to the Oval Office and meet the president. Which is the absolute thrill of my life. I mean, I, I, I don't know who, who knows if I'll ever be able to do that. So I prepared really, really hard for that, to, for what the message would be. So I went and go, told the president about uh, how important it was to keep schools open, was the primary theme. Um, when I arrived at that, uh, when, when I arrived, I, I got to be friends with Martin Kuldorf, who's a professor of biostatistics at Harvard um, the bi and uh, an epidemiologist, world famous epidemiologist. He was, um, uh, we, 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 uh, we, I mean, we immediately hit it off because we, we, you know, both shared, had been working on things like vaccine safety on, on a whole bunch of issues in common, um, that we would, it was, it was easy to get along with him. And now he's one of my best friends. Um, we, we, um, uh, when, well, actually I'll just tell you a quick anecdote on the side on this. Um, uh, when uh, Donald Trump asked me at that meeting, whether he had saved two million lives by shutting on the world in, in March of 2020, and I had to tell him no. I mean, it was really, it was, just, and it just it looked like I, I mean, I can I'm just the 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 fact that you have to tell a president no on something like that is is a uh, is still like a uh, I mean, it's like I just he just looks sad to hear it because I told him no because the the models were incorrect. Two million people weren't going to die in one or two months if he didn't shut the world down. Um. Uh, anyways, I, I, I think that that, that that experience to me was, was it, it, it led to this this relationship with Martin Kuldorf, this intellectual relationship where we um, started writing together. 
in October of 2020, he called me and said, look, uh, I want to hold a, con a, a, a little conference with you and Sunetra Gupta at Oxford University, who's a, a, probably the world's premier uh, epidemiologist. Um, and uh, what we want, what I want to do is, I just want to have a, a conversation about what what the right, uh, what what sort of where COVID policy is, and what the right thing to do, given our different scientific understandings of it. Um, so that he, when he invited me, I jumped at the chance. Uh, I, I flew to to Western Massachusetts, um, and uh, we had a, a conversation. It turned out, although we came at it from slightly different places scientifically, we'd arrived at the same idea, this focus protection idea. Um, that, that we just discussed earlier. And it shouldn't be surprising that we'd arrive at the same idea because it's, it's actually not even a new idea. I mean, it's, it is, it's the old pandemic plan, right? There was wisdom in that pandemic plan that came before. And so uh, Sunetra is more of a, has her, made her career as a theoretical epidemiologist. The modeling is, her, is one of the, she's a fantastic mathematician. She'd arrived at the same place uh, bio, Martin is a what the world one of the world's leading biostatisticians, and um, I mean he arrived the same place. And I and I do health policy for a living, and health policy uh, a scholarship for a living, focusing on bubble population. And these are the people that Fauci and Collins are calling, including you, are calling fringe. Yes, when you're you're actually some of you are at the top of, of your particular fields. I, I mean, I, I, it it's essentially an ad hominem attack, right? Sure, it Why, is. Is the idea right? I mean, even if even if we're three of us are nobodies and we're right, then it ought to get a respectful hearing, or possibly right, it ought to get a respectful hearing. Um, but but uh, that that is not how it was treated. No, certainly. But there, I, it seems to me there was a couple of countries, or were a couple of countries, that did take the approach you suggested. One of them was Sweden. Did Sweden basically, uh, maybe with some differences, uh, take that approach that you have addressed, that is, you protect the vulnerable in the nursing homes and so forth, but you don't shut down all of society? And if so, uh, how did they fare? So in the very earliest days of the epidemic, there was some failure on those lines in Sweden. So in Stockholm in particular, there were nursing homes that were infected in, the, in I think, March, April 2020 that led to a lot of deaths there. So that was a failure of focus protection. But at the same time, that Sweden did not adopt a strict lockdown-focused approach to this uh, pandemic. They kept their, for instance, the primary schools open the entire pandemic. Um, and the, the, they, they had no children dead during, the, during, the first, uh, the, during that first year at all, zero to, zero, zero to 15. They kept their daycares open. Um, they're, they're, and the teachers actually were infected at lower rates than the population at large, because the schools actually turn out not to be the central places that where disease the disease spreads. Um, so Sweden followed a, a much closer to the traditional pandemic plan uh, again with some 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 mistakes. Um, uh, they, they for a little while they they uh, they they. But they, they, they like the main. The, I guess say the main thing that's different than what Sweden did is is that they trusted the population. So for for you know when there was high community spread, they'd tell the population, well, you know, mass gatherings probably aren't all that wise right now. Don't don't meet together more than ten people or whatever. Um, and they didn't go around policing it. They just told people, and they and people listened to them because they trusted the public health authorities. The public health authorities weren't actively. Um, you know, act, weren't acting in oppressive ways, and so people people listen to the the, the, the advice. Um, that is very different than what the public health authorities in the United States did in many many places. Right? In California, the schools were closed for almost eighteen full months. 
even though uh, it was, it, 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 you know, they, differentially affecting poor poor parents uh, right. who uh, can't afford to send their kid to private school, can't afford to get a tutor, can't really afford to stay home and watch over uh, their kid as they as they uh, you know struggle with online school. Um, and so I think that 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 uh, that 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 kind of sort of draconian policy, this mandate focus, we're going to force you to do this policy, undermine the trust that people had in public health. That I mean, and you know, at the start of the pandemic, I would never have thought it would possible to squander that trust. I think a lot of uh, a lot of people had a lot of trust in public health. The vaccine hesitancy movement, for instance, was was actually a really marginal movement before the before the pandemic. Yeah, and. Uh- I quite agree with you, and I think people understood, again, going back to the polio example, uh, and certainly with regard to the treatment of heterodox thinkers like you, that there was more going on than just trying to combat COVID, that uh, that that enterprise got caught up in other agendas to the detriment of public health. Well, I mean, if you look at the worldwide consequences of what we've done, Wesley, it's 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 just absolutely shocking, right? So, the World Bank, if you look at their numbers, a hundred million people were thrown into poverty by our lockdown-focused response. The lockdowns in the West have consequences for poor countries that we don't we almost never take into account, right? So, the we've globalized our economy; a billion people lifted out of poverty as a result of of essentially poor countries reorganizing their economies to fit into this globalized economy. And overnight, we snapped our fingers and said, no, no more. And the 100 million people got thrown into dire poverty, less than $2 a day of income. Tens of millions of people thrown into dire food insecurity. Hundreds of thousands of children dead from starvation. Is that true? As a consequence. Is that true, really? It's I true. haven't yes. heard In that. March of 2021, the UN released a report. 228,000 children um, dead from starvation and from missed, uh, miss, missed uh, childhood vaccinations in South Asia alone. That's um, just uh, stunning. And, you know, it, it, you, know you see it uh, in the papers maybe for two seconds and people forget immediately about it. Like the actions we take have consequences on the lives of the poor and vulnerable everywhere. And yet none of that was taken into account in our thinking in, in, in the policymaking. Yeah. And, um, I mean, so the whole thing has been just heartbreaking to me to, to see play out. Like we followed this myopic policy. Uh, just think about the lockdowns themselves, like the sh- shelter in place orders and other, other, other kinds of lockdown focused policies. Well, who could lock down? It's going to be people in, I call them the laptop class that, that won't lose their job. If you, if you, uh, if you have forced them to work from home, that's only maybe 20, 30, percent of the of the american economy much lower percentage of of, of a poor country's economy um and the rest of the population well they they can't really afford to lock down they have to work um even if they're vulnerable even if they're older and had high risk if they get if they get covid um it's an incredible i mean i i can't think of a policy in my lifetime that's generated more inequality than these lockdowns yeah, that, that's uh, that's an ironic part because the people who support the lockdowns are the ones who are supposed to be so much against uh, ec- economic inequality. I, it's I, I've been calling it trickle down epidemiology. Uh, <laughs> that's interesting. Let's talk a bit about the vaccines. Time is flying, but I, I want to keep going because I, I value what you have to say. The vaccines, uh, I think, were. Um, and I'm not getting political here, but I think it's fair to say they were Donald Trump's greatest triumph in the sense that he really pushed uh, Operation Warp Speed, uh, engaged the private sector to uh, 
to get these vaccines out quicker than anyone dreamed possible. In fact, when he said they'd be out in a year, he was decried and and denigrated uh, for something that actually came to pass. On the other hand, the vaccine seemed to um, be something of a disappointment over what we had hoped in the sense that they do not prevent disease. Is that a fair statement? It is. That's exactly right. So uh, people who are vaccinated and, and Look, I'm a I'm pro vaccine. If they had a vaccine for bad breath, I'd take it. Uh, I had the Moderna vaccine. I've had the the um, the two shots plus the booster. So I I'm very pro vaccine, but I'm anti mandate for the very reasons that you describe. That it leads to distrust, coercion leads to resentment, and it and it helps. Um, I call it an exploding cigar because there are always these consequences that flow from that attempt at coercion. People, you know, hospitals that are short-staffed, firing nurses, as an example. Cops, uh, when there's a, a, a crime problem uh, being fired off the force. The the trucker lockdown that's happening in Canada as we're recording this. So to be, and then you then you see when someone says, "Well, I'm for vaccine, but I'm anti-mandates." You're called an anti-vaxer, which of course is baloney. So you end up with this kind of very. Um, Alice through the looking glass kind of discussion as a society. I mean, the vaccines, like everything, got politicized in the United States. Uh, in places where they didn't get politicized, like Sweden, you had pretty easy vax up vax uh, uptake by large chunks of the, 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 especially the vulnerable population. They prioritized the vulnerable, older population, and they had enormous uptake. Uh, um, in the United States, actually, it's strangely before uh, before the November election of twenty twenty. The discussion by the left in the United States about the vaccines was incredibly skeptical. Yes, uh, there was I a letter that. put by put by uh, put put out by um, uh, some prominent scientists, uh, essentially asking Pfizer to not release information about the vaccines or or not to push the vaccines through the FDA until after the election. Which, of uh, course, it, has nothing to do with science. No, uh, and I, I actually I, I testified in a House uh, committee uh, about vaccines in in. Um, in the summer of 2020, um, where I was, I was, I was called by the Republicans, and that there were group that was called by the, the the Democrats. Scientists were called the Democrats. Some of many of the scientists I respect. I mean, and I've, and I've followed for years, um, but they were talking about the FDA's ability to 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 look over the safety of the vaccines in ways that I didn't recognize. I've worked with the FDA for years. There's a lot of fantastic scientists there who care deeply about the safety of vaccines, and so I was really taken aback to hear. Uh, fellow scientists sort of questioned that. But then when, after uh, the election uh, in 2020, November 2020, and Donald Trump lost, you had this almost reversal overnight. Um, it's really, really, really unfortunate. This should never have happened. This, yeah. is, this should never have been a political issue. I, and and you, you brought up a really important point about, about the vaccines and what they could do, right? So the, 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 the end point in the clinical trials of vaccines was prevention of symptomatic disease. I thought in December of 2020 that it's possible that it stops infections, but I didn't know for certain. So I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal calling for using the vaccines for focused protection because it's going to stop symptomatic disease. That means you can use it certainly to protect older people from the worst outcomes of the disease. Um, And I figured, okay, well, let's wait and see if it can stop transmission. 
but pol the policy adopted by the CDC and other others or recommended by the CDC and others was to uh, use the vaccines essentially to get us to zero COVID, to stop the disease from, trans from, from going around at all, for which you need to tr vaccinate basically everybody. And it wouldn't um, have mattered anyway because people who are vaccinated get COVID. We didn't know that. They right. made a bet in January or December, January, that if we just vaccinate everyone, we can stop COVID from spreading. We'll be done with the disease forever. So you can see it in the rhetoric that they said at the time. I recall that, that turned out to be wrong. Now, I hoped at the time that they were right. I thought it's possible they were right, but I didn't know for certain. So that's why I call for using the vaccines for focus protection. But that by that, you certain. meant just limiting that kind of uh, almost, say, saturation vaccination to the people who are the most vulnerable, consistent with the Great Barrington Declaration? Exactly. Because by doing that, we reduce the, 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 the risk of severe disease and deaths, most likely, as a result. Um, I mean, th the frustrating thing is the vaccine trials told us only about prevention of severe disease. To me, the right inference for that is, well, if you prevent severe, uh, I'm sorry, uh, symptomatic disease. If you prevent symptomatic disease, you were likely going to prevent severe disease, is, was my reasoning. The uh, public health authorities thought if you prevent symptomatic disease, you also prevent all infections. I they turned out to be wrong. I turned out to be right, right? So it does actually prevent severe disease. It does not prevent all infections. And so I, I for instance, I took the vaccine in April and, 2021. And this is the kind of discussion that should be allowed to happen freely because, you know, both those positions that you just described could have a reasonable basis. and. Yeah. And uh, the idea that one side should be stifled and the other promoted, again, is an anti-scientific approach. I, I mean, the, what you just described earlier, Wes, about being called an anti-vaxxer, well, that's a slur. Yes. It's, it's, a, it's a slur aimed at excluding people from, from a legitimate conversation. Well, how should we use the vaccines? Uh, not, not every vaccine doesn't necessarily have to be universal. Right, so we 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 don't necessarily universally recommend a hepatitis A vaccination. It's only if you're headed to endemic areas that you recommend that, right? So the question is like not that the the point is not that every vaccine ought to be universally used. The right question is what are the harms? What are the benefits? Uh, let's look. What is how's it differ for, for for different patients? Um, that's the right way to think about this. Not it's not a it's not a a. a characterization of your moral fitness if you think if you if the hep a vaccine is not the right thing for you at the time i mean yeah. it just means you don't need the hep a vaccine and and um i want to get one thing really cleared up here uh you're not saying and i, I don't know of any um you know legitimate scientist who said that the vaccines are actually highly dangerous um obviously there's some uh, always a chance for side effects but they don't have things like uh, trackers in them and so forth right <laughs> no, no. Um, I mean, I, I think the vaccines have saved many, many, many lives. I mean, that's what I think. I, yeah, I think, uh, yeah. but at the same time, there are, it has caught. There are been vaccine injuries, and we ought to take take those seriously. Like those, those are not things we should ignore. And there's a community of people that are growing up around this vaccine that are really unhappy because they've they've suffered injuries like myocarditis. Young young men who got the vaccine got myocarditis, for instance, and they feel like their stories aren't being told. And they have no real recourse. That induces distrust that we can't afford exactly um, so I, right and and when you when you do that uh that leads to the idea of paranoia you know that there's this big conspiracy and uh, the the answer to bad speech is good speech it's not stifling speech 
And uh, the, the vaccine circumstance, every vaccine has the potential for side effects. Every medical treatment has the potential for side effects. You could be getting a, uh, have a terrible side effect getting your tooth filled at the dentist. Everything is part of, as you said earlier, a, you know, there's, a, there's harms and there's benefits. And the potential detriments of the vaccine, from what I've read, are small, but they're not non-existent, which gets into the idea of should someone be forced to take a vaccine if they feel that they don't want to take the risk of the, the even if it's a slight risk of a side effect. I mean, if I had my druthers, what I would have done um, is I would have very strongly recommended in favor of the vaccine, especially for the vulnerable. Yes. So that if you're if you're uh, at a high risk because you're older or because you have some chronic disease that puts you at high risk, absolutely very strong positive recommendation to take the vaccine. I can't force you to do it, but I can tell you on, on net what the what the what the what the benefits are, and they very vastly outweigh the uncertainty over the the, the side effects. On the other hand, for younger people. Um, make the vaccine entirely optional. Talk with your doctor about it. See if you're if it makes sense for you. Uh, you know, maybe maybe there's an immunocompromised child or something that that, that for whom the vaccine makes sense. But for a healthy child, it's it's a close question. I, I mean, it, I, I think it's completely reasonable for a parent to say, well, I don't. It's not not worth it. My child already had COVID uh, and recovered. There's no or already has some natural some some immunity as a result of that. That doesn't make sense to have it. I mean, I think that should be something left to decisions between physicians and their and their and, the, and patients, not forced. Right, and not not uh, the government forcing passports and not schools saying if you're not uh, you know if you're six and you don't have the vaccine you can't come. Right, because the harm to that six year old is is immeasurable. I, I mean, um, we've we've already push six-year-olds to read, uh, read, learn to read on Zoom yeah. uh, uh, we've, you know, for, for the pandemic. And, and then the, they can't go to the Museum of Natural History in, in New York or something because they're not vaccinated or something. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, I don't really understand it. You, you brought up an important point, and, and uh, I want to move along here just because of the time factor. Natural immunity. Um, if people get the vaccine, I'm sorry, if people get the um, disease and they overcome it, then there are antibodies in their system that prevent further infection that last for a particular period of time, depending on the disease. Why has natural immunity in this country been suppressed as a, uh, let's say, a, um, a way of saying, look, I'm, I'm pretty safe here, where in other countries, natural immunity has actually been taken into account? Uh, I, th I think that um, our scientific leaders, very early on the pandemic, uh, latched onto the idea that we don't know for certain if you are COVID recovered, whether you have some protection against the disease. Um, the, the, the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, the current one, it, before she was CDC director, signed a memorandum called uh, the, the John Snow Memorandum in opposition to the Great Barrington Declaration, in which she said, when, in, which, in which it was said that we don't know for certain that there's any protective immunity after COVID recovery. That was wrong. At the time, there was a, a, a pretty convincing scientific literature that there was actually not just not just antibodies, but other mechanisms of immune protection, uh, T cells, B cells, cellular immunity that protected against uh, against uh, reinfection if you were, were to get uh, if you were to get if, if your COVID recovered. There's already strong evidence in October 2020, and it's just gotten stronger over time. Um, so now, I now I think Omicron can evade natural immunity in the sense of you can get infected, but you're very likely to have a mild infection if you yeah, have. So it's almost over. like the vaccine, right? Yeah. 
Because um, it, it can evade the vaccine and get give you a mild infection. Yeah. Um, so you have this like, so you have this situation where like, this is like overwhelmingly true scientific fact. Um, I think a lot of the scientific leaders in our community in, in the, our, our, in the United States wanted to use the messaging around, they were afraid that the messaging that if you were COVID recovered, you, you don't, you know, the, the marginal benefit of the vaccine is small would lead people to not want the vaccine. And they wanted everyone to get the vaccine because they, they figured that's the only way to stop the disease from spreading. And they doubled yeah, down think, on it. Yeah, I think there was a um, denigration of the American people in the sense they didn't think that we were smart enough to make these decisions and they had to treat us like children in a sense. It's exactly what happened was they, 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 they thought they, they used uh, the, 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 the falsification of a scientific point, lying about a scientific fact in order to manipulate behavior, in order yeah. to make it so that more people would want the vaccine. I think that's backfired because scientific facts have a way of getting out. Yeah. Um, true scientific facts have a way, way of getting out. So now there's just distrust around around this. That and they've and they've dis- they've destroyed trust in the entire public health sector. Yeah. You've written, um, "We cannot stop the spread of COVID." This is a recent article, but we can end the pandemic. What do you mean by that? Well, we have no technology to stop the spread of the disease. The lockdowns don't work. The vaccines don't work. Masks don't work to stop the spread of the disease. Despite all of these adoptions of these technologies, the, the disease will spread and will continue to spread forever. If, uh, we, there's, this has, there's animal vectors, uh, animal reservoirs of this disease. Um, so there's just, you have to accept that this is a disease that will spread in human, human populations forever. Uh, a pandemic is a political decision in my mind. A pandemic is not a biological fact, not a epidemiological decision. It's a political decision. So uh, pandemic means that we are going to reorganize our societies around the, the uh, around uh, managing this one threat. Uh, world pandemic means all, uh, you know, effectively means around the world. We're going to organize, reorganize all of, all of the world's societies around the, managing this one threat, uh, this pathogenic threat. Um, I believe that the declaration of a pandemic continue, uh, the continuing declaration of pandemic is harmful to human health and well-being at this point we should go back to a, a regular order where we understand that there are many threats to human health and well-being that, that need to be addressed not simply this one threat and that that a monomaniacal focus on this one threat is damaging to human well-being more broadly speaking um, but the term pandemic has a scientific basis. Would it perhaps be uh, better to say uh, we can end the emergency as opposed to end the pandemic? Because the pandemic is, you know, if it's still spreading around the world, it's still spreading around the world, right? I mean, that sense, the pandemic's here forever, right? It's 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 a disease. Uh, I mean, for instance, is um, you know, is are, are the other coronaviruses, the other four coronaviruses, which cause common colds, are they pandemic? I see. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I think the word pandemic in the minds of the public means something very, very, very serious. Yes. And so while you're right, I think Wes about, about the, you know, you could talk about like about what it means technically from an epidemiological point of view. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to address this in my public communications over what, how people, per, I, I think people perceive it. And by saying uh, we should end the pandemic, I mean, and, and that the pandemic is a political decision. I, maybe I'm not using it in the traditional way. Right. I, I think I'm using it in the way that that's consistent with um, with how people have come to think about it. Right. So basically, you're saying, okay, we're going to have to live with this. 
Yes. And, and then we'll have steps that people can take to try to reduce their, their risk. The same thing, how we have to live with flu, even though tens of thousands of people may die per year from flu. Yeah. And, and we don't shut down society over it. And, you know, I, I, just, to, just so people don't get scared when they hear this, we have a lot of tools now to address this. Right, that I think the vaccine does work to stop uh, to, to reduce the risk of severe disease and, and death if you could take it. Um, we have uh, early treatments, ones that are not controversial at all, um, including things like monoclonal antibodies that even even for Omicron work. Um, Omicron itself seems inherently milder. Uh, it's I mean, it's, of course, can still cause severe disease and death, but uh, uh, but but uh, that doesn't that you know. But we now have tools that protect against those bad outcomes if we just deploy them at, at scale and use and, and give sort of good messaging about it. Um, we have to, uh, it's not anything like the scary time it was in March of 2020, and we shouldn't think of it that way. Right. We, and and you're, you're basically saying that the time has come to just live with COVID and move forward in society because the harm otherwise is far worse than the disease can bring at this point. Exactly. Exactly. It's 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 far the 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 set the suite of of policies we've followed have been socially divisive, have been bad for health, have caused uh, uh, economic damage on a scale that's just unimaginable, um, and as a result, will harm the health of the people that would have been harmed economically. It's left our kids out of school for almost two years uh, with uh, learning deficits that are. That are uh, 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 that are off the charts and incredibly unequally distributed. Essentially, a lost generation of poor poor kids, poor mi- yeah. poor and minority kids. Um, we, we need to go back to, th- to trying to think about how to manage those problems rather than simply thinking about COVID itself. And do, and co- I'm not saying don't think about COVID. I think we should continue to do research, uh, like on on vaccine, new vaccines, new treatments. Um, think about how how to manage ma- manage the disease. Just like we try to manage lots of other diseases, uh, I'm not saying pretend like COVID doesn't exist. I'm saying we should return to regular order, and in that regular order, we'll have better outcomes from holistically than, with, than if we just continue with this emergent state of emergency. Right, and and the, the canard that you were advocating, everybody go out and get COVID, so we can have herd immunity, which of course is a lie, uh, is, is not what you're saying. It never has been. Um, yeah. that, that is the propaganda campaign that Tony Fauci waged against the Great Barrington Declaration. Yeah, exactly. Um, you've war- warned about a um, the emergence of a biosecurity state. What did you mean by that? Uh, the, so the bi- a biosecurity state, in my mind, is a state whose governing principle has to do with uh, re- re- the the reduction of of risk from bi- some cer- certain biological threats. So, in in the context of what we've experienced the last two years, we have lived in a biosecurity state. Uh, we've reorganized society so that even basic fundamental rights, the, the right to speech, uh, the right to, to, to assemble, is always uh, viewed with an eye toward how does it affect the risk of the spread of a pathogen. Um, and if, that, that takes precedence over everything else, over civil liberties, over um, uh, educating our children, over being able to go out and enjoy life and so forth. Right. Um, th- where the purpose of the state is to is to ensure your biosecurity, ensure that you have you have uh, your uh, the biological threats that, that that are articulated as as as, as the most important of the time are you we we work to keep you safe from them, um, at the expense of all else that we find we find valuable, right? I yeah. think um, societies that are are like that are necessarily authoritarian, 
necessarily violate basic fundamental notions of, of, of what, what I view as a liberal society ought to, ought to follow. Right. And we've been talking about speech. Speech is, is, is a, it's, it's been one major area where I think uh, the, the, those normal um, uh, the, those normal protections that liberal society provides for, for speech have been completely uh, overturned over the pandemic. Yeah, and and you see some societies that are, have been shocking in Australia, for example, the the um, draconian lockdown so that people. Uh, couldn't even leave their homes. Uh, and you saw, and as we're uh, recording this, there's the idea that uh, demonstrators can have their bank, and, and Canada can have their uh, their bank accounts frozen uh, yeah. because they're engaging in activity, whether it's illegal or legal. I mean, the idea of freezing a bank account before a trial is pretty remarkable. I mean, Queensland, Australia, they, they, they were, they had put up a, what I can't, I, mean, I don't know what's to call it, essentially a concentration camp of, of people who had COVID and people who had been in close contact with people who had COVID. Yeah. Quarantine and camps. You, yeah. And for, and you could get thrown in there for, for weeks with no due process. So the idea of a, of a biomedical state is that um, the pretext for authoritarianism would be keeping you healthy. But the yeah. actual purpose would be to erode freedom and and uh, suppress democracy. I mean, the thing about I don't I don't I mean I guess that's a question of motives, right? Like I think right. some of the people that are in favor of it really do want to keep you safe, but I think that they are ignorant. I don't believe that this suite of policies will actually end up keeping people safe. I think in the long run, it actually ends up harming the health of the population than uh, relative to a different, a, a, like the more liberal set of policies. Yeah, it becomes highly utopian in the sense that the ends justify the means. Yeah. And then uh, eventually the ends become the means. And, uh, and you, I think that's what you see in the uh, Communist uh, Party in China, you know, yeah. where they actually were nailing people into their their doors shut on their apartments because they're trying to go for zero COVID. And you said that, uh, that trying for zero COVID is a fool's mission at this point. I mean, it was a fool's mission in April of 2020 when we did, we found that 4% of LA County already had COVID right. antibodies. That was your um, early, uh, early study. And then the wall street journal, and then suddenly your life exploded. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think the problem was like, we, I think that really is the fundamental problem all through this pandemic is that we, that the policy isn't driven by a utopian fantasy yeah. that somehow we can get, we can make uh, COVID go away if we just try hard enough. Um, that was never possible, What should yeah. have been, what we should have done is we realized that this is going to be here and then, then undertaken steps to protect the vulnerable. There are other uh, issues I'd love to get into, but we don't have time such as uh, whether this emerged from uh, any manipulation of the virus at the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology, but I do have one last question that involves Dr. Fauci. I'd like your thoughts on, you know, I wrote, I came across in uh, the summer of 2020, an article he wrote in a um, scientific journal called Cell, which is kind of odd that it would appear there, but the, he, he co-authored a piece in which he wasn't discussing COVID policy, but policies he wanted to institute to prevent future pandemics. Yes. And he wrote, a, he wrote this. He said that he wanted to uh, increase the power of the World Health Organization and the United Nations to, quote, rebuild the infrastructure of human existence. And he then went on to say, in such a transmission, we will need to prioritize changes in these human behaviors that constitute risks for the emergence of infectious diseases. Chief among them are reducing crowding at home, work, 
and in public places, as well as minimizing environmental perturbations such as deforestation, intense urbanization, and intensive animal farming, to closing the quote. Basically, he's saying that, the, as I read that piece, and I don't know if you've read it, that there should be a, a almost a global technocracy of experts who will uh, use what they consider to be the science of preventing future pandemics to basically tell all of us how to live, where to live, what to eat, uh, who we can um, uh, recreate with, and so forth. Uh, are you aware of that piece, and what do you think of it? Yeah, I've read it. Um, it's a biosecurity state he's describing, a worldwide global biosecurity state. Exactly. Uh, we, we, we reorganize our societies around the the, the uh, protection against the emergence of new new pathogens, um, and, uh, uh, and, and that is the central focus. Of uh, and central organizing principle around governance, um, he is essentially calling for an end to the uh, the, the 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 liberal order that has that has essentially been uh, the, the the ruling idea since the, the American Revolution. Um, I, I think uh, if we follow that path, uh, we will come to regret it. I think it would make us a lot more like China than yeah. I think we should be comfortable being. Right. Well, thank you very much for being with me. What's what's next for Dr. Bhattacharya? <laughs> well, I, I have a, a, a few initiatives. So like one, I, I have an um, uh, initiative in the UK called Collateral Global, where we're documenting the, the scientific evidence on the harms of lockdown uh, on, on, for people around the world. Uh, another initiative with Hillsdale College in the United States, where we're uh, called the Academy of Science and Freedom, well, what we're doing is we're 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 trying to essentially res to bring science back to its senses to to uh, essentially have a to to restore the the, the norms of good faith discussion um, within science itself, it, with ending science censorship within science, and also to help bring a conversation about what the proper place of science in society should be. I think um, those are important efforts, and it reminds me of um, some of the efforts also being made, for example, by Robert George, who I've had on Humanize. Uh, to do the same thing for academic freedom. Yeah, well, he, I, he's been he's been very brave on that. <laughs> As are you. Well, thank you for being with me, and I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you, Wesley. Really pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org slash human. We can only do this work, speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos, with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.